This is the scrum. Scrum is a podcast from WGBH News about politics and media from Boston to the Beltway. I'm reporter Adam Riley, and joining me here in the studio at WGBH are my Scrum colleagues, Peter Kadzis and David Bernstein. Hi, guys. How are you doing, Adam? So we're starting uh, this week's Scrum on a much more somber note than we usually do. Uh, Video surfaced yesterday showing James Foley, the American journalist from New Hampshire who'd been working uh, for Global Post, based here in Boston, being killed uh, in a really gruesome manner by uh, apparently people representing ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, that has in a very short period of time taken over a big swath of the Middle East. Um, there are a few, I think, different sets of issues for us to talk about in connection with James Foley's horrific death, media issues, political issues. But I'd like to start, if it's okay with you two, with some media questions. As you both know, Twitter has been attempting to curtail the dissemination of the imagery of James Foley's execution. I have a quote from uh, Twitter's CEO here. We have been and are actively suspending accounts as we discover them related to this graphic imagery. Peter Kadzis, I want to start with you. What's your take on this, especially given your background when you were editor uh, at the Phoenix dealing with the video of Danny Pearl's execution by Islamic militants? Well, um, Twitter no doubt feels a great sense of responsibility, and this shows all of us, you know, the massive power media, you know, monopoly digital gatekeepers have. Um, And I, I can certainly respect their desire to not profit from a grisly video. Banning it outright, however, I think is a big mistake. Um, I don't, off the top of my head, have a clear idea how you deal with it. Um, Someone responsible, perhaps there should be a a media consortium set up for the future, could put, I would argue, for the whole video, but even perhaps an edited version with all sorts of warnings saying, you know, warning, this is grisly, this is that. Look, Back in the end of World War II, um, when Life magazine published the pictures of the Holocaust and the concentration camps, there was a lot of uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth saying, how could you run pictures so awful? You run pictures so awful because human beings do awful things to themselves. And I I think it's very important that those people who, who want to see how bad it is have an opportunity to inform themselves. This is the real world. I want to get David in here, but first, one more question for you, Peter, just for listeners who may not be familiar with the decision that was made at the Phoenix involving that Danny Pearl video. Could you just recap it briefly? Basically, what happened is um, there was talk that there was a Danny Pearl a video of his execution. This is the reporter for the Wall Street Journal who had been captured reporting in Pakistan. Yeah, and although he had, interestingly enough, had been a Phoenix intern at one point. Dan Kennedy, our then media reporter and now a contributor at WGBH, found a link to it. He sent it to me, and we published a link to it with all sorts of warnings. Um, And then all holy hell broke loose. You know, we were roundly condemned by many people saying we were trying to profit from Danny Pearl's death. Interestingly enough, many people on the far right were applauding us. 
death threats came in. I mean, it was a, a very – and in my naivete at the time, I just assumed that people would take this as a, you know, a, a, a perhaps gutsy but ne- nevertheless simple journalistic question. David Bernstein, have you watched the video of James Foley being executed? Uh, I have not. Um, will I, you? Um, I, I don't know that I will, um, but I do think that, uh, like Peter said, I think that it's important that it's available. It's interesting, you know, uh, you and I both actually uh, came to the Phoenix not long after that Danny Pearl situation. When I was interviewing uh, uh, with uh, Stephen Mindich, the publisher, I, I actually brought it up and had a long conversation with him about uh, the context of that and, you know, what, it, what would he do in different situations with different kinds of things. It was a very interesting conversation. You know, I think that, you know, as dissemination of things becomes uh, more and more, you know, fluid and easy, uh, the decisions get harder and harder because, uh, like Peter said, uh, it's one thing to be able to sort of act as a gateway and say, here is something we're providing for you if you want to go there and, you know, here's what you're going to be in for if you do. And, you know, we're sort of being the journalistic gateway to it. Twitter and Facebook, it's just there. You know, it's very easy for it to just sort of be there where you just can't avoid it. it that, that can happen very easily, as we've seen with a lot of things that yeah. are just sort of, you know, annoying or cute or whatever. Uh, it, it can happen with these horrific things. Uh, so, I, you know, I think it's it's tough. Twitter is not inherently a journalistic entity, but it has to accept that, you know, it is, it, it does play that sort of role. So, and, and Adam, just one thing, having seen the Danny Pearl video, I, I have no desire to see the James Foley video. I, I mean, to put it graphically, seeing one person have his head cut off with a sword is enough. It's not something that I think loads of people are going to go to see. I actually but. never watched the Danny Pearl video, and I haven't watched the James Foley video either. I read the Daily Mail account of his execution last night, and honestly, that account in prose was about all I could handle. I, you know, it was hard for me to take, so I don't think I'll be watching it either. Let me ask you, too, what you think about the challenge this is going to pose for news organizations as they try to decide who they're going to send, if they're going to send anyone to cover ISIS's expansion in the Middle East. This is, I think, notwithstanding the Ebola crisis in Africa, I think ISIS's rise is the biggest international story going on right now anywhere. And yet, if you have a a regime, not just a sort of a, a group of outliers, but a regime that apparently endorses you know, the, the medieval gruesome execution of journalists, can you in good conscience send a reporter uh, or a freelancer to cover this regime, even sure. on the margins? You can? I think so. And the other thing is, um, first of all, people volunteer for these jobs. No one that's sent. You know, combat photographers are like the Marine Corps of journalists, you know, they're very brave. Photographers and print. Yeah, and print. But what say. I'm saying is the photographers in particular, I, I think, be, because yeah. there's something physical about what they have to do. I, mm-hmm. I'm not knocking. When I'm saying these are voluntary assignments and these are very brave men and women. And listen, this is not the first time James uh, Foley was captured and held uh, once before. In Libya. In Libya. Yeah, these are people who are committed to bringing the story of bad things to the rest of us who lead relatively comfortable lives. It's interesting you say, how can you in good conscience send someone? And I agree with that. And at the same time, how can you in good conscience not send someone yeah. to cover you know, what's going on there and to show that to the world? So 
you know, I think that that it has to be done. You'd like to think that it, it matters enough to the country and to our government to however they can sort of facilitate or 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 help out. And and I certainly imagine that there is going to be you know very very serious response and working to find and take care of whoever did it. David Bernstein, do you think there's also going to be ramped up pressure for more aggressive military action against ISIS in the wake of this? I would think so, but it's, you know, there's very little appetite for it. And and it's a very complicated thing because it's not, it's a very difficult geopolitical puzzle out there right now. They don't have a a very clearly set, defined nation state in in a classical sense. They're sort of at war with various different parts of various different countries. Uh, The big thing that they're trying to do right now is consolidate geographically the the pockets where they have gained control in Syria and Iraq and so on. Uh, and, And it's a very difficult thing to step in and do anything about. This is clearly something that's going to require international response uh, and I think you're going to see a lot of high-level discussions about what that means. Peter Kadzis? Well, from the warrior party in the United States, I would say um, keep an eye on John McCain and Lindsey Graham. They are usually the most bellicose, and what they say in relation to this would be a mm-hmm. f- fairly reliable leading indicator of th- the way, if I could say, you know, the, the responsible, the most responsible, most militaristic side. I don't know if this will make any real difference in the long run. I think if anything, it might make Obama's job a little easier because those people on the left who were saying, oh, no, are we getting involved again? You know, here is concrete, um, concrete evidence that the, these are bad guys. Bad, bad right. And, and what's interesting, really, is that you hate to say this, but this incident, as horrific as it is for us back here and, and you know, particularly as journalists, but, you know, just just in general and the fact that it's an American, it is different. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that at the high levels of sort of international discussions about what to do about ISIS, this is not a game changer in any way. This is not, this does not tell them anything different about ISIS than they knew yesterday or, you know, the day before. That's a good point. Uh, You know, this is not in the, in the scheme of horrific things that ISIS does. And in terms of the geopolitical threat that it uh, presents, this does not, I I don't think this changes the calculation. It changes the public perception here in America. I forget, it, it was earlier this week, the Pope, who was a bit of a peacenik, blessed, not literally, figuratively, in a very limited way, the American airstrikes there. Mm -hmm. Because it is, you know, not just uh, minority indigenous religious groups there. Uh, Christians of all stripes are being wiped off the face of the Middle East, especially in Syria, which has many of the oldest Christian communities in the world. We could, I think, keep talking about James Foley's tragic death and the the rise of ISIS for quite a while. But I want to turn, if we can, to a domestic crisis that's been unfolding for weeks and dominating headlines for weeks. I'm talking, of course, about the unrest in Ferguson. Do you two think, we're talking about how President Obama has or hasn't been able to um, engage what ISIS is doing in the Middle East. Do you think that the president has responded effectively to the crisis in Ferguson, could he have done more? Uh, has he done enough? What's your take? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's tough. He hasn't done as much as a lot of people would like. I think you, I, I think he is leaving the, act, the action 
to the Department of Justice. And I think that we're going to see Eric Holder really um, go in pretty aggressively, not necessarily fully taking over the investigation, but investigating the investigation, if you will. And, and I think that we've already seen that in, in some pretty stark ways. And I think that he's signaled that it's going to be even more so. And he's going out there personally today, I believe. Um, uh, he may be on the ground now as we're speaking. So, look, uh, uh, the president himself is in a tough situation because, you know, this is, uh, this is a situation where there are multiple truths and, and there is a truth to the side of unrest that says there is a context here, a broader context of the, the bias and unfairness that, that law enforcement in America shows to uh, African-American men in particular, and then the, the, the injustice in what, how law enforcement acts when these situations arise. Uh, and that context, you know, he's very aware of and, and is not, you know, but, but at the same time, there is truth that this is an individual incident and there are, you know, facts about the individual incident that you have to, uh, that have to be dealt with independent of that context, even though that context is real and matters, you know, and, and, you know, you can't have Obama jumping in and making conclusions about what needs to be done in, in this specific case where, you know, frankly, the facts may say a lot of different things that we don't know yet. And it's true that there have been, uh, you know, a large number of peaceful protests, but also incidents where looting has occurred or the protests mm-hmm. may be turned uh, ugly. So he can't. And, and, and those, again, you have multiple truths that are, yeah. that are it's true at the same time. Peter Kansas, what do you think of the president's handling of Ferguson? I, I, I think it's about what it should be. He's never going to make everyone happy. People on the left wish he did more. I mean, my word, he can't do anything right as far as the right wing is concerned. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Although actually when he called for people to suspend judgment, a, a number of very many of the people I would consider responsible conservatives – you know, politely applauded what he said. I think he's done just about what he should and what he can. Um, he has to hold himself in reserve. See, I see this moment as potentially a radicalizing moment, not unlike the Occupy movement. Let's not forget, Occupy didn't just all of a sudden come together and then one day everyone knew about the 1%. It took many weeks, it took many months for Occupy to capture the public's imagination. Now, Occupy itself... Is, is somewhat spent as a movement or appears to be at least for the time being. But Occupy put the question of economic inequality firmly on the political agenda. The question in my mind is will this put the issue of racial inequality, economic inequality, the inequality of justice, this has the potential to put this squarely on the agenda at an election time. Since we've talked a lot about media issues today, I got to note the fact that the president in his remarks on Ferguson talked about how reporters should not be uh, harassed or detained for doing their jobs. When, of course, some would argue that the administration has taken the harassment and detention of reporters to new heights. I mean, in fact, I think quantitatively, it's clear that they have done more to, to go after journalists uh, for reporting in ways that the federal government believes are threatening. They've done more than any previous well, the, administration, the, with James Risen, of course, who seems the, to be headed to prison for, um, for or pardon me, is he in prison at the moment, Risen? Is he actually? Oh, that's, you know, you know I, I'm not sure that, I, I don't have an answer. Yeah, all right, that. well, um, listen, the Obama, anyway, the, the Obama administration has been a tool 
for the national security state. There's no doubt about that. You know, just to be really fair, many of these actions began under the Bush administration. However, Obama's president, they could have stopped it. Um, He has been a tool, and I have to say, Adam, like you, when I heard him say that, I thought, poo on him. (laughs) You know, know, look, look, everyone is a big fan of the First Amendment until it's about them, you know, until the reporters are coming on their door, you know, and and getting leaks from inside their organization and and so on. You know, hypocrisy from from politicians is, you know, to me, I I, I liken it to the double dribble or traveling of of basketball. Everyone's doing it all the time. And, you know, you only call it out when it's the other guy in a close game. You suddenly, you know, know, for all the coverage of Ferguson, and I I have to say that um, MSNBC, which I have several times been, you know, pretty critical of for their knee-jerk liberal opinionizing, um, has been on the ground and on the street and has done an excellent job of reporting. Um, it's worth going back and looking at the videos. They've um, done a good job of telling to the extent to which there are two sides of the story. Uh, and also uh, Wesley Lowry, formerly of the Globe, now of the Washington Post, if you want to know what's going on in the street mm-hmm. out there, go online, look his stuff up. However, I still think a lot of the main story is really being missed. First of all, the real story or one of the stories is – what happened to Michael Brown? That's what this should be all about. The second is more complicated. And there are people like Michael Tomaski um, who've written about it, looking at the political power structure around that. Look, to me, the, the case story in Ferguson is what happens when people don't vote. It's a, a community of 22,000 people and only 6% of the African-Americans vote. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you a little bit because, uh, because I don't think it's entirely about— Not entirely. I, I, no, and I don't even think it's, it's primarily about—in in a in the broader sense, I think this is the frustration uh, that you see, the, the, the instinctual frustration, is that there is a sense— with many, many African-Americans. I mean, I, this is something I've talked about and, and, and written about and had conversations with people about for years and years and years. This instinctual sense that in cases involving us, meaning in particular African-American men, young men, you never get the truth. It's never actually about the thing that happened because they're never going to let you find out what happened. And that, oh, I think there's a lot of truth to that, by yeah, the way. And, 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 I don't and, disagree. And I think that, that, that you see from the very beginning of this of this situation, you see, you know, what happened to, to the officer? Not only was he, his name protected, but apparently it, it sounds like he took off for a while and then came back, you know, and, uh, and they're, meanwhile, they're leaking things about, about the victim, you know, and, and if there's no trust in the, the force that's on the, the ground and the, you know, the police actions uh, in investigating a case, it's it's not ultimately in a way about what actually happened. It's about whether whether there's a, just a broader sense that police and justice in the, in this country do not have to care what actually happens when the the person involved. It's like the the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman case. The the ultimate real thing that that triggered the the outrage was that George Zimmerman was allowed to just walk out of the police department. Oh, I agree. You know, Listen, I, I it wasn't about what actually happened. It was I, about your Kansas. I ha- cared what happened. I happen to think that this, the, the, the Trayvon Martin Zimmerman case was worse. Zimmerman was a civilian. Now, the fact, you, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that man should be in jail today. 
The reason Zimmerman's worse is he was a civilian. It's not that the police have the right to go around shooting people. He is at least, and this is what makes it the the, the review important, he, he is a designated member of society. Um, what I was saying is that there's a story there that we're not, not going to get at, but that is what's really at issue here. And, and the, there's no way anyone can argue that young black men in America get a fair shake in the courts or on the streets. This is clearly another topic that we could spend a couple hours talking about. Let's turn our attention to the Massachusetts governor's race. It's a very tough transition to go from (laughs) crisis in the Middle East, horrible tragedy uh, for James Foley and his family, unrest in Ferguson to horse race politics here in Massachusetts, but we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) A recent poll showed that if Steve Grossman is not the Democratic nominee, that a lot of his supporters are going to back Charlie Baker, the Republican, who is probably going to be the GOP's nominee for governor, as opposed to Martha Coakley, who will probably be the Democratic nominee uh, if Grossman is not. That being said, uh, were you surprised by the revelation that a lot of Grossmanites are uh, apparently crypto Bakerites? Well, a couple things to say. First of all, I, I would take that. Uh, Jim O'Sullivan, who, who wrote the piece, is one of the best there is at, at what he does. And, and Boston Globe Boston political Globe, reporter, Jim yeah, O'Sullivan. And, and, uh, it, it, but in this case, I think that this was, uh, you know, analysis searching for something, you know, that, that wasn't really there. You know, as good as the Globe weekly polling with uh, Social Sphere is and as useful as it is for what it is, I, I don't think it's the type of poll that you can dig down below the main numbers and get anything particularly uh, you know that you can put a lot of confidence in. So I, I think that that. I, I would Why take, do you say that? Well, I don't want to get into. Well, get, get, get in a little you know, bit to, to uh, your. Uh, uh, you know. In other words, anyone who stayed with us this long will listen to David <laughs> on polling. On, on polling, <laughs> this, this is uh, it, the, the value of this particular poll is, is it's polling relatively small numbers in batches twice a week, and then sort of doing a. a Combining them, and then you can—it's essentially a slow motion tracking poll. Okay. If people understand, which is a whole different, you know, the whole term not to get into. And rather if you're than still with us, ra- rather than <laughs> uh, a big snapshot of a you know large percentage of the Democratic primary voters at one time, uh, where where that kind of poll. You really can dig down into the cross tabs and and with some high degree of certainty. All right, those so esoteric objections notwithstanding, yes. is there, there a is bigger important <laughs> lesson here? <laughs> and to and that right is, now? I think that the big important uh, lesson here is that there is a chunk of the Democratic electorate, whether Democrats or Democratic leaning uh, independents, who are against Martha Coakley, and whether or not they actually end up voting. Uh, you know, if if it's Coakley versus Baker in the final, there is that resistance within the party that is going to make it hard for her to the whole Democratic leaning batch to herself. Now, I would suggest that is less to do with the sort of insidery thing of being mad at her about the loss to Scott Brown, uh, having some you know personal you know relationship, relationships with her uh, over the years, or even the sort of image of her coldness or whatever, you know, that people talk about. Well, you even have people uh, going back to the Fells Acres Well, that, and that's exactly what I was, gonna, was getting at. It, you know, this gets at what Peter has talked about before about the difficulty of, of being a prosecutor politician. It's, you know, she has been 
involved in controversial cases. All along the way, you pick up people who are going to be angry about something you did as as a prosecutor, as the head of a prosecuting large prosecuting agency. Peter Katz, and that adds do, up. Do you agree with David Bernstein's take on on uh, this these reservations about Coakley, this wariness? I, I think so, and I can cite my own poll. It's my friends, family, and neighbors poll. FFN. Yep, which is 13 households that really exist, 13 households, all primary voters, 26 people. Now, what that poll tells me is that all of the women in this instance, because they're independent or democratic-leaning, all of the women are for Coakley. Now, many of them are not enthusiastically Mm -hmm. for her, Mm -hmm. but they are stalwarts. They are voting for her. The story to me is on the the male side, where with of the thirteen, um, all but two who are Republicans were with Coakley back in the spring, and now they're they're going with they're going to vote for Baker. They're pretty sure. Do you know or, what it is? Or, just anecdotally, what they like about. Um, is it that he's competence? not. No, the, 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 um, the, yes, part of it is the managerial competence, but he's not Martha Coakley. I mean, again, I'm reporting this is mm-hmm. what what people have said. Now, there's two Grossman guys there, and who are still with Grossman, and then there there were two who were bake, with Baker to be, begin with. But uh, see, I, I I think that both in the primary and in the final. David often talks about the women's vote. Well, mm-hmm. that's going to be incredibly important. I was surprised by the Grossman, you know, by the, the Globe mm-hmm. story, to go back to where we started. Um, I mean, that's the first bit of local news that, you know, really caught my attention. Although, uh, and I'm not being snarky, I really appreciate David's sort of debrief and deconstruction of that. But it, it got me thinking. It also seems to me to suggest that a topic we kicked around, uh, David, you and I, on Greater Boston this week, Peter had a hand in this too, the question of whether Charlie Baker is doing enough to please the right wing of the Republican Party. You know, some of them wish he were showing up at anti-illegal immigration rallies or, or you know, showing in a more aggressive way that, that he's one of them or gets them. This poll, in a way, seems to suggest that he's doing it exactly right. You know, he's right. not running to the right at all in the primary. He's positioning himself for the general election when he gets there as a very palatable middle-of-the-road candidate who right. Democrats can support in good conscience. Right. And, and essentially, the way that Charlie Baker wins is that he gets every single vote of people who are not particularly keen on Martha Coakley. And, and he can't afford to lose any of them back, to have them jump mm. back across the fence. And so he has to be very careful. So, so the, the people you're talking about, the conservatives who are unhappy with him, they're on his side of the fence already. You know, and, and he risks somehow you know, losing them in one way, you know, but one way or another. But it, he has to assume that he has them, and he has to work on not losing back anyone. And the, and, and the one final thing I would say just from uh, what Peter said uh, about the women – Look, if Charlie Baker loses women 60-40, which is what it looks like would happen if the vote was taken today, it's hard to see how he can win. So, so something mm. has to not only keep all of you know, the, the anti-Coakley, he has to wear down somehow that 60-40 uh, among women right now. He, he can't lose them by 20 points. That's what Scott Brown found out in, in his race. All right. That is going to do it for this week's Scrum 
In the coming weeks, we'd like to install a little competition among Scrum listeners. So we're asking you to email us your predictions for the primaries, which are on September 9th. Uh, Please say who you think is going to win and what percentage of the vote you think they're going to get. We'll have more on this next week, but we're going to have a prize for the person who's able to most closely guess the primary winners and their margin of victory. And our brand new email address is, get your pen and paper uh, handy, scrum at wgbh.org. Org. A- am I allowed to enter this contest? <laughs> uh, are, are, are contributors to the station uh, not eligible? Uh, you know, actually, me? I think it'd be good if you did. <laughs> it'd be good just yeah. for comparison. Not just you, not just Peter, friends, family, uh, my wife, I can guarantee, <laughs> will have no interest in entering, but I'll try to get her to enter too. Um, is, it, is this going to be like uh, like one of these NCAA pools where you totally. know people who know nothing about politics end up beating the experts? Almost, Probably. Certainly. <laughs> if you like what you hear on the Scrum, please subscribe to us in iTunes. You can also find more from us online at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. The team includes WGBH political analyst David Bernstein and WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis with producer Abby Ruzica and engineer Jane Kippick. I'm WGBH News reporter Adam Riley. Thanks for listening.